All right, so 1974, Young Frankenstein. Uh, I think this right here's uh, my, it's my favorite Mel Brooks movie, probably his best. What do you think? Well, I think he said the same thing. Uh, he said he thought that this was his best best film overall as a film. Uh, he did right around that time. He had some considerable success. The same year that Young Frankenstein came out uh, was the year the Blazing Saddles came out. So uh, he was really going, uh, you know, uh, uh, full thruster at a certain point. But as far as being uh, uh, a recognizable comedian on TV, which he had been for years, yeah. he, he was uh, on uh, Sid Caesar's uh, writing staff for your show of shows with uh, Woody Allen and Neil Simon, I think, were two of the other writers. And Neil, I think Larry Gelbart was also on that uh, in that group. And uh, Brooks had a couple of successful uh, films before, uh, Blazing Saddles and Young Frankenstein. He did The Producers, which I don't know if it was a big box office success, but it certainly was a terrific film. Yeah. And it's still, still re uh, remembered. And of course, years later, they did the musical of that, which was a big hit. And they also uh, tried the same thing with, with Young Frankenstein, which I think wasn't quite as big a success. But... Um, <clears throat> Yeah, he uh, he was all around for a while there, uh, and uh, I only learned when I was researching this uh, uh, for this episode that um, he was approached by Gene Wilder with a script. Gene Wilder had worked on Blazing Saddles, Blazing and, Saddles on, yeah. and the producers, so he was used to working with Gene. But uh, I think he said he would only do. Blazing Saddles. If Mel Brooks agreed to do this movie, which oh, is that right? Yeah. I think it's what I think it's how it went. Well, the story I heard was that they were um, Gene Wilder. Uh, Gene Wilder's agent told him, uh, "What do you think about doing a movie with Peter Boyle and Marty Feldman? I think it was uh, Boyle and Feldman, uh, two people who he had just uh, started to represent." And uh, I. Peter Boyle had had a big success with Joe, uh, which was a Oscar nominated film uh, <clears throat> about the hot hat uh, guy uh, dealing with uh, the hippies. I don't know if you've ever heard of that one. No, I've never seen that one. <clears throat> that was his first big success. He might've been nominated for best actor for that. I'm not sure. Anyway, uh, he so he was up and coming and Marty Feldman was uh, up and coming at that point. Feldman had had some success on British television, quite a bit of success on British television. Was he on? Uh, was he on any of the Monty Python? Was he well, on part well, of that? Not he, part of the group, but was he on any of the movies or anything? No, he was in a show that some of the Pythons participated in before they did Python. No, oh, okay. uh, there was something called uh, the not not uh, what was it? Uh, finally, the nineteen sixty eight show, something like that. It was like a, a sketch program. I guess it had some uh, new stuff in it. Anyway, he was part of that. And then he went on and he did a show which was syndicated in the United States, uh, Marty Feldman's Comedy Machine or something mm -hmm. like that, which uh, Larry Galbot was also involved with that. Barry Levinson was involved with that. And uh, uh, Spike Milligan, this British comedian who was part of the Goon Show, which also inspired the Pythons. Uh, Marty Feldman would go on and do, I don't know, I think he died before he got to do it or he died in the middle of doing it. 
Yellowbeard, which was Graham Chapman's film, which also had some of the Pythons, Eric yeah. Idle and John Cleese. Um, uh, from what I read about that film, Monty Feldman might have been lucky to have died by the way he did. But anyway, uh, uh, he arguably, uh, you know, maybe him and Gene Wilder could could be said to be big stars of Young Frankenstein. Oh yeah. Because I remember that certainly as a kid, that was a, a big inducement to go to see the film that Monty Feldman was in. We watched, we watched, always found him very funny on television. Uh, so, uh, you know, he's the guy with the crazy eyes. The, the yeah. Kids immediately are interested in any, anybody who has a physical deformity of any kind. <laughs> uh, but um, the cast for Young Frankenstein was, anyway, I should finish my, my first story. Uh, the rep, uh, the uh, agent uh, for Gene Wilder suggested that he work with uh, Peter Boyle and Marty Feldman because he was representing them. And Gene Wilder said, oh, I have this script and it might be good for, for them. And then the guy said, this is great after you read it. Why don't we take this to Mel Brooks? So I guess he also represented. And Gene Wilder assumed, based on his experience with uh, Brooks, that he wouldn't be interested because he wants to do his own stuff. It turns out he was interested. Uh, I guess Brooks shared uh, Gene Wilder's uh, affection and, and nostalgia for the old Universal monster films. So uh, Brooks came on board, and at some point, I guess he contributed enough uh, that he ended up with co-screenwriting credits. Credit. Yeah, I think I need to recry what I heard. I think I got confused about uh, Gene Wilder said he would do this movie if Mel Brooks didn't have a, a part in the film. Oh, okay. He didn't want yes. him to cameo in the movie because he thought it would take away from the well from the he, film. You know, he was probably right in that regard. Yeah. The cast is so terrific as it is; you really don't need anybody else. And it, it probably does free a guy like Mel Brooks. Uh, probably is a different person when he's directing than when he's yeah. performing. So <laughs> it frees him up from any sort of concern about, you know, uh, being funny on camera. He can just worry about what to do behind the camera. And I have to say, this is a very well-made film. Uh, it it really completely. Uh, duplicates almost it's supposed to be a parody it's a little yeah. larger than <clears throat> uh, the original universal films but it it certainly there are moments in it where you feel if the, if you just sort of chop this out and put it in one of those old films oh you wouldn't even notice it yeah it, it don't even feel like a par parody to me it almost feels like just a movie they made back in the 30s that just happened to have happened to be funny you know what i'm saying <laughs> well i think the, that's actually a, a good point because i think the reason why it is so funny is that this is one of those comedies where nobody uh, with the exception of maybe marty feldman uh nobody seems to be aware that they're in a comedy yeah everybody else is especially gene right. wilder is playing that serious <laughs> when you know when his opening scenes when he's giving those lectures uh, it's completely convincing as a, yeah. as a a doctor uh, speaking about, uh, you know, the human body. Mr. Hilltop here, with whom I have never worked, nor given any prior instructions to, has graciously offered his services for this afternoon's demonstration. Mr. Hilltop, would you hop up on your feet and stand beside this table?
nice hopping. And it's because we have accepted that the reality of it, uh, that the stuff that follows is funny, right? Yeah. Uh, the business with him and being the old man. Uh, you know. <laughs> Reflex movements are those which are made independently of the will, but are carried out along pathways which pass between the peripheral nervous system and the central nervous system. You filthy, rotten, yellow son of a bitch! <gasps> we are not... Or his, uh, his anger at being called uh, Frankenstein. Frankenstein, yeah. Frankenstein. I have one question, Dr. Frankenstein. That's Frankenstein. I beg your pardon? My name, it's pronounced Frankenstein. But aren't you the grandson of the famous Dr. Victor Frankenstein, who went into graveyards, dug up freshly buried corpses, and transformed dead components into... Yes, yes, yes. We all know what he did. Uh, that's, that stuff is funny because uh, there's that sort of friction, that conflict between somebody who appears to be sort of dignified and in control of themselves and intelligent uh, dealing with uh, these uh, unexpected things, yeah. which is even, true all through the movie. Even when he stabs himself in the leg with the scalpel, that doesn't feel like a parody joke. You know, you know what I'm saying? Yeah. It just feels like a, I don't know, it just feels natural, I guess. <laughs> well, that, that, it's a very funny scene. And uh, I, as soon as I saw the old man, uh, I was watching it this afternoon. As soon as, uh, as soon as I saw the old man, I said, I know that guy from somewhere. Yeah. Blazing Saddles. <laughs> he was in Blazing Saddles, but he also was in, uh, in Mary Tyler Moore Show. He played oh, okay. Ted, uh, Ted Baxter's father. There was an episode where Ted Baxter's father comes back to visit. He, it, I don't know if you remember the Mary Tyler Moore Show, but uh, Ted Baxter was a sort of idiot newsman, that they, uh, anchorman that they had on that show. And they, uh, his father comes back. He, he's estranged from his father, and he visits one episode, and it's that guy. Uh but he didn't get his beat up in Mary Tyler Moore show as he yeah. does this. <laughs> but uh, yeah, that uh, the, the thing I remember when I saw this in the theater, because this is another, I know I, know I sound like a broken record, this is another movie I saw yeah. when it first came out. Uh, the audience was really swept up by the story. You know, it was the sort oh, of yeah. film where you could watch just for, uh, for interest. It's actually one of the better adaptations of frankenstein yeah <laughs> there are a lot of other serious attempts to do frankenstein that aren't as involving as this one is you know yeah i started i started just kind of going through some of the other ones um son of frankenstein which this seemed to have copied more than in the other ones almost seems like it could have just been a comedy <laughs> well i think by the time they got to son of frankenstein uh, they were sort of um, a little more aware. Well, that's that's not really true. Bride of Frankenstein was basically yeah, a sort yeah. of secret comedy. I yeah. think James Whale was pulling people's leg on a lot of that stuff. <laughs> uh, I suppose that's maybe the first uh, camp uh, movie, right? I mean, it's uh, uh, Ernest Thesiger, uh, who I think is the only major character in the Frankenstein movies that isn't parodied in this film, right? There's really no equivalent to his character. Yeah. Uh, maybe they thought that would be going too far because he's <laughs> he's a comedy character to begin with, so it's it would be impossible to to uh, to uh, make him into more of a parody. But uh, that son of Frankenstein uh, has the business with the 
the uh, gendarme or the police officer with the wooden arm. Yeah. Lionel Atwell played in Son of Frankenstein. And you're right, a lot of those scenes do sort of play as comedies now. I mean, like whenever I, I he, whenever, yeah, whenever, whenever, he, whenever he first gets into town, and yeah, you know, the whole town's there waiting on him, and he's you know, he's giving this speech about how I know my my father, you know, had all this horrible stuff happen, and he's trying to defend him, and everybody just starts slowly walking <laughs> away, <laughs> like they're just losing interest. I'm like, that's pretty good. <laughs> I quite realized that it was my father's misfortune to be the unwilling, unknowing cause of tragedy. I'm so sorry that I don't remember him, because I've been told that he was a good man. And I know how greatly your tragedy must have weighed upon his mind. I can't undo the wrongs that you've suffered, but I beg of you, let the dead past remain buried. My wife and I and our son, we want so much to be your friends. <laughs> yeah, there's a lot of things that if you just pushed a little further, it could be a, a, a bit of comedy. Yeah. But I, I mean, we talked about the Hammer films and, and uh, compared them to the Universal films. The one thing that's true about all of those films, which may be uh, uh, something that a uh, modern audience doesn't get, is that they were never meant to be taken as, um, how should we say, a realistic drama. Yeah. They were always treated almost like fairy tales. Of a, a fairy tale setting, you know, completely fictitious settings, uh, and the characters, uh, the actors that they picked to play the characters, always had that sort of heightened melodramatic style of acting, which Basil Rathbone is absolutely a master of. You know, uh, nobody does it better than he, than he does. Uh, and the uh, Lionel Atwell to see Basil Rathbone and Lionel Atwell going at it, the scene, <laughs> that's just you know, that's perfect. But uh, there's a lot taken from Bride of Frankenstein as well, including the famous blind blind man scene, the blind yeah. hermit, which I think is one of the funniest scenes in, the, in Young Frankenstein. Oh, yeah. uh, and it also confirms my view that Gene Ackman is a brilliant comedian <laughs> yeah. when he wants to be, when he gets a chance to be. Yeah, the, funny, the funniest part of that scene is uh, he, uh, he ad-libbed it, was the, uh, I was going to make espresso. I was going to make espresso. <laughs> <laughs> and they have to lay. It said that they had to fade it, fade the scene out quickly because everybody was laughing. <laughs> and he, he couldn't do it again without laughing. So they just, that's the take they used. Well, he's a funny guy. There's no question about it. And uh, he, he, to be honest, he his performance uh, up to that point yeah. <laughs> uh, is really almost a, a, a complete duplicate of the guy who played it in the original part, at least as far as I can remember. Yeah, the, uh, It's so close that it almost feels, again, like you're watching the original film. That's why when he's pouring the hot soup in the monster's <laughs> yeah. lap, it's so hilarious because it's so you feel so convinced by the scene that uh, when it takes that sudden turn, it's, it's, <laughs> the comedy is especially effective. Yeah, something I didn't realize until today for some reason. Whenever he's on the train, <laughs> the first stop's in New York, and then the second stop is in Transylvania. So it's like this joke of like this train went <laughs> right all the way to Transylvania. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and and the couple sitting behind him are talking about the same thing, but they're speaking about it in English and English and then in German. Yeah. 
speaking about their uh, their kids uh, masturbation problem yeah okay. <laughs> uh yeah the, the interesting thing about mel brooks films and, and it's true about get smart and the other things that he was involved with is that he's sort of like monty python and sort of like the zucker brothers in the, in the sense that once you get the uh, once you understand the comedy language that he's speaking yeah. it, it all sort of falls into place you you know you almost start to laugh as you see the gags being set up uh it, one of the things that brooks likes to do is to throw in uh, little references that a lot of people nowadays probably wouldn't get at all no. like when when a train stops and he says pardon me boy is this the transylvania station and the boy the kid little kid says yes sir would you like a shine well that's the lyrics from chattanooga choo choo mm -hmm. pardon me pardon me boy is this the chattanooga station i think is the original line uh most people probably wouldn't get that and there's stuff actually all through the movie that are references to uh things that probably most people wouldn't nowadays <laughs> wouldn't have any familiarity with including the frankenstein movies themselves yeah that's actually something that i find interesting uh when you talk or especially around halloween where, where we are now we're just uh, a couple of weeks from halloween when, as we shoot this for modern audience, uh, Frankenstein is really more a comedic character than oh, a Frankenstein yeah. monster. Uh, the, in this film and having Costello meet Frankenstein are the two films that almost everybody seems to agree on that they love, you know, uh, especially around Halloween. Yeah, and I would say the monsters probably. And the monsters, yes. Yeah. It's interesting because we have a monsters movie. <laughs> yeah. And uh, I, I don't know what the first parody version of Frankenstein was, uh, but it seems to me there have been a hell of a lot of them. If you discount the ones that have been done for TV, variety shows and things yeah. like that, I'm sure there have been thousands of those. Uh, and the Frankenstein monster has popped up in some unlikely places, like in uh, the original version of Casino Royale. Uh, oh, really? What's comedy that? version. Yeah. Oh, they're, they're called, okay, yeah. Right. He, uh, the, there's a scene where Bond is trying to escape from exploding headquarters and uh, the Frankenstein monster just happens to be walking fast <laughs> and he asks him for directions. Uh, but the monster, the monsters, Rocky Horror Picture Show, which I guess came out a couple of years after this, right? Yeah. Uh, 75 or 76, uh, Evan Costello and Young Frankenstein. The only other one that I can think of is Andy Warhol's film, Flesh for Frankenstein. But yeah. Uh, but I'm sure there are others. Uh, oh, yeah. So that's something we can research and include in the notes <laughs> yeah. afterwards but why it should be that people find the parodies of the monster more interesting than the story itself is is kind of i mean of course you have things like frankenberry the uh the cereal the yeah cereal, and you got uh, groovy ghoulies i don't know if you're familiar with the groovy ghoulies that might be before your time that was a cartoon series yeah i know what they are we talked about them before <clears throat> I, I yes i seem to remember that so uh, we're in an age where i guess Frankenstein monster really could only be taken seriously as comedy. Yeah. That makes sense. <laughs> uh, but uh, young Frankenstein is kind of hard to beat because it is so accurate. The fact that there should be so many young people who've never seen the film, the original films, who love this movie so much, that's odd too. I don't Yeah, especially when be... you think, what are they, do they, do they get any of the references at that point? <laughs> right, yes. Unless they just sort of, uh, the trappings of gothic horror films from that time yeah. are so constant in the uh, in the in the media that kids are consuming as they grow up 
including the breakfast cereals and the cartoon shows, that maybe they just they understand that without any uh, without seeing the movies. Yeah, I don't know if it was because this this story is mainly written by Gene Wilder that it has a different feel than other Mel Brooks movies. That's yeah. more like you know the jokes aren't in your face. Right. There's you know it seems like a lot of Mel Brooks' other movies are Pratt Falls and like blatant in your face jokes. You know what I'm saying? Right. Where this is more. It's obviously a different comedy. I think this is best. I think this is the best one. That's why I think it is the best Mel Brooks movie. Well, he had the advantage of actually having a story, whereas a lot, yeah. a lot of times when you're doing these type of parody films, this was true for the for the Pythons as well. The jokes are more important than the story. So yeah, they have no problem breaking the fourth wall or for you know abandoning certain uh, plot strands because. The story itself, I mean, a great example of that is something like Monty Python, The Holy Grail, which has always been one of my favorite comedies. But the film ends with somebody walking up to the camera putting their hand on yeah. the lens, you know. I mean, blazing saddles ends with them watching the end of the movie. <laughs> that's right, yes. So I guess the Pythons were not, uh, that wasn't a particular, it wasn't yeah. a, an original idea for them. But, <laughs> but that, uh, that willingness to sort of throw the story out in favor of a good joke uh, that's a, like, for instance, in Young Frankenstein, I think I heard in one of the documentaries, I think I heard somebody say that Brooks was originally planning a sort of a, uh, uh, a last scene where like a, a, a curtain call mm -hmm. where, where all the actors would come down that grand staircase uh, towards the camera, maybe bow or something, including him at the end, yeah. Mel Brooks. And that was never used. Uh, but I would think one reason why it wouldn't be used is because in this film, they never do anything to break uh, the reality of the situation. In other words, they never do something like what uh, was done in Blazing Saddles. With, yeah. Uh, it turning out to be uh, something. <laughs> yeah, <but shot>. yeah. <clears throat> right. Which is something that they do uh, frequently in uh, Python on the TV series. Mm -hmm. Uh, you know, when they get tired of a sketch, they'll just pull back and <laughs> yeah. the, the actors will walk off or walk onto another set for a different sketch. Uh, and they do it in the movies as well. Right? They, I guess the biggest thing on here would be the Marty Freeman breaking the fourth wall like yes, five yeah. times or something. But it's not nothing major. It's not like a doesn't take you out of it. And he's the character. He's the playing a character where that's acceptable. Yeah, yeah, yeah. If any, if any other character, well, I guess maybe the Frankenstein character does it sometimes too when yes. he looks at the camera and right. gives that, yes. gives that look. So. Yes. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> which makes the the uh, blind hermit scene that much more effective because oh, yeah. you can by watching the expressions in the in the monster's face, you can see that he's uh, fearing what's going to happen next. You know, when it, when the time comes to. Uh, uh, drink the wine and his stein gets uh, destroyed and he and he glances at the camera yeah. you know but uh, who, yes. who doesn't make a, i mean i noticed some of the stuff on the neck didn't look too good but the the head of plants looked really good i wonder who done that well the thing on the neck is a zipper yeah you know, that, so that's it's kind of a joke um yeah. i don't know i i I think I heard that they got some of the old universal. I, I assume in the seventies, all the guys that were still doing the guys that had been doing the makeup in the forties uh, and fifties and sixties, might as that Bud Westmores and those people. But I'm not right. sure. Uh, I know that they did have one aside of the monsters' makeup. They have one uh, makeup effect, I guess you could call. They created a, a fake uh, 
head of Peter Boyle, which was which had lights inside and a dimmer. So when he's being brought to life, you see that scene where his face is sort of glowing. And you yeah. see his skeletal outline in his teeth. I always assumed that that was an optical effect. But I, yeah, I they, thought they just yeah superimposed. That's what I thought. Yeah, but it it, it works nicely, and uh, I guess that that is this, an example of why this film overall works so well oh, yeah. because there's a lot of care put into it yeah i know uh, that um when mel brooks found out that the guy that made the original props for the laboratory and the universal movies was still alive he went and seen him and that guy actually still had all the props that's right he yeah. rented them from him and that's what's in this movie so yeah i that, uh, that gives it like a really good look also yeah I, I looked up the guy's name and i found it but i can't find it right now anyway <laughs> Uh, I guess he hung on to those things for years, and I guess he must have also have uh, uh, let uh, Al Adamson use them for Dracula versus Frankenstein because that was might have been before uh, Young Frankenstein yeah. that they all, all that equipment appeared in in uh, in that film. So uh, that equipment certainly got a workout. Uh, I don't know who has it now, but uh, it's immediately recognizable, and of course, it adds so much to the uh, the authenticity of, uh, of of this film. You know, it really does feel like it, because of those things, uh, those that attention to detail, the film feels like it really just fits right into Universal's uh, catalog of, of horror films. Funny thing is, Universal. <clears throat> I suppose they could have made this movie. I don't know why they didn't. Seems like every time Universal has an opportunity to uh, uh, capitalize on this, uh, this uh, all these franchises that they own, one of the most uh, loved uh, series of films ever. Right? I mean, yeah. people are still talking about, as we are, still talking about Frankenstein and Dracula and all these uh, movies that they made back in the '30s. Movies that are you know, uh, almost a century old. Uh, and yet Universal always seems to be a day late, a dollar short when yeah. it comes to... Uh, 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 another example, uh, uh, this is a little off off, uh, uh, off course, but uh, there's a Marvel movie now based on Werewolf by Night. Yeah. So they did that, or at least parts of it. Actually, it's not a movie. I guess is, is it a movie or a streaming series? It's it's on their streaming service, but I don't know okay. if it's a movie or a miniseries or. So they did it in black and white, and apparently made an effort to to make it look as much as possible or feel as much as possible like the old Universal films. And I guess that was a fair success. Mm -hmm. uh, I don't know if it's. It seems to be pretty popular for yeah. a lot of the good things about it. So once again, other people have success with universal Universal's stuff yeah. <laughs> and universal is lost they want, they want to try to do a tom cruise movie <laughs> yeah they i mean i give them credit they did back away from that finally i guess yeah, after yeah. the phenomenal disastrous uh, results <laughs> that they got with the mummy movie uh but uh they don't they i i think the problem is they uh, they seem to be a little embarrassed. It's almost as if they're stuck. There's a sort of uh, a legacy that they're stuck with. Yeah. That they made a decision in the fifties: no more classic monsters. Dracula and Frankenstein and the Mummy had to hang up, and the Wolfman had to hang up their 
cloaks or shawls or whatever, whatever the fuck they were. <laughs> and that was it for the classic monsters, right? And from that point on, with the exception maybe the creature from the Black Lagoon, or I guess it gets grandfathered into the classic monster category. But from that point on, they seemed to, to, to be allergic to doing anything with those characters, even to the extent of allowing Hammer and licensing the, the characters or their versions of the characters to Hammer rather than making those movies themselves. Yeah. Uh, that doesn't that doesn't make sense to me. I can I can I mean Marvel is a great example of uh, of a of a company saying we're going to go back and we're going to dig through even the most minor <laughs> character from fifty years ago or, or more, and we're going to do the best possible presentation of those characters and make a billion dollars for oh, each yeah. one of them. Universal seems to be sitting around scratching its head saying. Nobody really wants to see this anymore, do they? You know, and of course, if that's your attitude, then yeah, you know, the movies aren't going to be very good. They, the only way that they seem to ever bother or make any attempt to exploit those characters is at their uh, at their amusement parks. Yeah, and I understand that they closed one of the last ones. They they had a, <laughs> a like a diner or a restaurant that was monster themed, and they just closed that down. So one less tourist trap in the world. Yeah. That's nice to you figure that with the world of streaming services they could do something yeah well i don't know why the idea of doing something in the style of the original movies with uh the original versions of those characters why is that such a bad idea it yeah, seems it to me to be uh, i mean other people have tried it right uh van helsing the, the movie with hugh jackman that wasn't yeah. a good movie but they clearly were trying something like that Monster Squad, which is some people have affection for, that very obviously was an attempt. Oh, yeah. at that. So, and you know, one could say maybe Universal is taking advantage a little bit of their connection to the uh, to the, these franchise characters by doing the monsters. But there, it seems to be, you know, they do a little as little as possible. They're unwilling to spend very much. The <laughs> yeah. most they're willing to spring for is to, you know, make a, a movie for streaming. Uh, you know. Uh, Rob Zombie was probably the most expensive thing involved probably, in that film. Yeah. So, so I'm mystified by their approach to things, especially somebody like myself. Both of the films that I've done have been, uh, to a certain extent, uh, uh, tributes or uh, homages to Universal's films and Hammer's films of that, you know, of that time. Yeah. So I don't understand why people actually have the money and actually have the ability to greenlight projects can resist going back and saying, let's do this again. This <laughs> yeah. And if there, any of them are listening, I have a, some story ideas, so we could go right into production. Oh, yeah. <laughs> but anyway, but um, I guess perhaps because the only people that seem to be uh, making uh, Frankenstein movies other than Hammer uh, back around uh, the early 70s or people like Al Adamson with uh, Dracula versus Frankenstein, yeah. which is a terrible movie that I love, uh, but uh, it must have been disheartening to people who are Frankenstein fans to <laughs> see him in that movie. Uh, and of course, you have like the J Jesse Franco movies, uh, which usually have softcore porn elements, yeah. or you know, they're they're not the pinnacle of uh, cinematic art. So. Uh, Maybe it was because of the absence of any sort of representation of the classic monsters in movies that Mel Brooks and Gene Wilder found this a particularly attractive idea. 
you know they got to do it they got to fulfill a sort of a childhood dream of being able to make an old-fashioned monster movie yeah originally he went to columbia and they didn't want to shoot it in black and white right so he went to uh, 20, 20th century fox i think alan ladd jr had just got there and he okayed the alan ladd jr who secured his place in movie history by simply saying yes to every every <laughs> yeah. idea like, it just so happened he just was came along at a time when saying yes to star wars alien and this and a bunch yeah. of other movies <laughs> turned out to be the right answer so maybe uh, maybe that well of course i shouldn't say that because every you have every once in a while you have somebody like george lucas or yeah. ridley scott or you know uh, mel brooks but in other instances you have michael tremino coming in yeah. <laughs> with the heaven's gate so they you know it can go either way but uh, but this is still a funny film still many things that i find very amusing in it and it's interesting to watch even when it's not trying to be funny because a lot of the stuff uh, like the creation of the monster and uh, it's not not constant jokes yeah uh, it's really just telling the story and and uh, doing those scenes in, in the most effective way possible uh film probably would have benefited from a different ending i think i always thought that it was a little unfortunate that the whole thing ends on a big dick joke you know, yeah that's that's uh, but uh that the, that right there seems like mel brooks I, I think that's what i think mel brooks wrote that part <laughs> well possibly yes uh the uh that seems to be more of the like a blazing saddles uh yeah. type uh, sense of humor the the dance scene uh putting on the ritz uh which i have to admit when i saw it in the theater the first time as a kid I was worried about that when I saw that starting yeah. to happen. I thought, oh, this is going in the wrong direction. But then when Peter Boyle starts singing. If you're blue and you don't know where to go to, why don't you go where fashion sits? <laughs> that makes it work, you know. That That may be the secret here, is that with different performers, this might, it might, might not have worked work. at all you know now there was a i'd heard something about <clears throat> i guess this story takes place before that song came out or they used a version that came out after uh, because the, i guess the i guess the original lyrics were had some racial <laughs> stuff in it i'm not sure uh, <clears throat> yeah well, i'm trying i'm running through the lyrics in my head i don't remember yeah. them all. <laughs> They're very. Uh, I forget who did put on her. It's uh, is that uh, Cole Porter? I uh, think so. Yeah. Well, sometimes the lyrics have things in them that, uh, like, uh, I forget which song Cole Porter wrote that refers to uh, cocaine. I get no kick from cocaine. That's yeah. the song. Yes. Now it's I get no kick from champagne. But uh, there are a lot of instances of that sort of thing. So as far as the time, uh, you mean uh, uh, the Frankenstein story is taking place before? Well, no, yeah. actually, it's a contemporary story, right? Right, yeah. It's supposed to be taking place in the 70s. So uh, the original Frankenstein movie might have been done before uh, Putting on a Ritz was uh, written. I'm not sure. Was that, was that what you were saying? And that 
I'm not trying. I think, I'm trying to find it now because I'm pretty sure that's the way I read it. Was like the because they were talking about how the trying to say the store the time the year in the in the movie is different from what the well the year like, in this like movie that. presumably is 1974 right and it's it starts in modern day so uh, Cole Porter or whoever it was that wrote putting on the Ritz uh, wrote that in the 30s I assume. Uh, and here we are both looking at our, our yeah. devices, <laughs> trying to figure out who wrote, who wrote uh, Putting on the Ritz. But uh, in any case, his delivery of the song is what makes it funny. Uh, that uh, I don't know how he came up with that idea, doing that sort of strangulated... And it's like, uh, it's perfect because it's sort of like it, this creature has no understanding what music is. Yeah. You know, he's just uh, making a sound because he's been told to. So it's, uh, oh, putting on the Ritz, of course, was done by Taco. That's the, that's the memorable version. Yeah. Uh, no, I'm joking. Irving Berlin, of course, uh, not Cole Porter. Uh, so Irving Berlin would have been, that would have been in the 30s uh so i don't know i don't know if there's any sort of uh any sort of time problem there uh, but in any case yeah it's a funny scene it, but, it, it is a good scene and all the uh, uh all the stuff after that i suppose you could say that it, it, it doesn't really it probably could have been trimmed a little bit after that. Might movie might run a little longer than it should. Uh, some scenes that come along after that strike me as being yeah. The uh, with them capturing him and his wife showing up, her fiance showing up, that all seemed like they were just trying to rush a different story in there and get it get yeah. it done with. Almost yeah, like so they almost like the, okay, we're we're done with that storyline of the you know Frankenstein and the monster. So now, what do we do now? Well, we got to bring in, you know, bring some bring some more stuff into it, and then just end it. And that that's kind of way it felt. Well, the funny thing is that most of these Frankenstein movies that Universal did, uh, they might have been not a, not much more than an hour, sixty six minutes or so. Yeah. Or, uh, so I don't know what the running time on this is. Is it ninety minutes at least? Uh, it it's an example of. Uh, the parody being longer than the, than the original movies hour and 46 minutes hour and 46 so a little <laughs> yeah uh, well it's it's not a, a not a, a boring it doesn't movie feel like it. yeah it doesn't, it doesn't feel, feel like, like it. it yeah but it probably would have benefited after the putting on the ritz thing probably would have benefited uh some uh, some trimming would have made it uh, i think a better a better film overall and finding a different ending uh you know other than the way it goes I mean, the, uh, I haven't heard anybody complaining about it, but the the, the rape scene is probably, uh, <laughs> in some people's <laughs> minds, that would be a, a little uh, out of order nowadays. Yeah. Uh, I don't know how he handled that in the musical. Presumably, he doesn't have uh, women breaking out into song when they're being raped <laughs> by a monster. Yeah. Right? But... Um, I guess you could say that since this is meant as primarily as a parody of those old movies, yeah, you know, it's it's uh, it shouldn't shouldn't be taken uh, seriously. Seriously, yeah, <clears throat> you shouldn't get in your head that if you 
woman starts singing while you rape her, then it's all right. <laughs> <laughs> well, I have to admit, it does slightly diminish the enjoyment of those scenes, though. Yeah. Because you can know uh, it isn't. Uh, I mean, it's a it's an old uh, comedy idea. Uh, uh, that's sort of similar to the old comedy idea that all older men are interested in 16 or 17 year old yeah, girls. Yeah. That was something you could joke about even back uh, when this movie was made. <laughs> but uh, it's not something that people want you to be joking about nowadays. Uh, and this probably falls into the same category. It sort of darkens it a little bit. But I mean, if you go back and you look at comedies from years ago, you're always going to find something that. Oh, yeah. You know, yeah. There's movies from the 80s. When I look back now, I'm like, that is not, oh, <laughs> that yeah. was not appropriate. <laughs> it's surprising because the 80s are not that long ago. And yet yeah, they just really went way out on a limb with some of the stuff. You know, it, really it makes you think, there. like, what was I thinking that I didn't catch on to that back then? <laughs> Like, why yeah, didn't we, I see that? Yeah. <laughs> I guess it was the culture at the time. There were just yeah. some things that weren't... Uh, and, and I guess also because of the... Uh, by the 80s, we had fully accepted uh, the extent of our freedom, you know, in terms of what could be done in movies and what could be done on television. And so uh, it was uh, people who were taking full... Uh, advantage of their right to express themselves uh, who had these old-fashioned ways of thinking about things uh, so you end up with a bunch of like teenage sex comedies which yeah. were a very popular genre back then as a matter of fact there's some films that aren't even really teenage sex comedies that have elements of teenage sex comedy and like the yeah. uh, horror movies uh, the, the Friday the 13th and Nightmare on Elm Street they had that sort of feel of like what you would be normally seeing in a teenage sex comedy, you know? Uh, and anytime you're making jokes about underage sex, you're on, you know, thin ice, oh, yeah. especially nowadays. Mm -hmm. But some of the biggest hits of the eighties, like Porky's and, uh, you know, they were all about kids getting it on in their van. Yeah. Yeah, Revenge of the Nerds, that's the movie that comes to mind whenever <laughs> whenever I start thinking about like stuff that was like just not right whenever right. they whenever they made it and you look back now and you're just like, I just don't know if I can watch that movie ever again. <laughs> <laughs> well, American Pie was fairly recently. I yeah, mean, that was just early two thousands, I think. Yeah. So the, that trend, you know, of uh I guess what they were always going for is there had to be a scene in it like uh, in, uh, there's something about mary you know and and in porkies and in uh in uh, uh what was the movie i just married american american pie american pie yeah yeah uh there has to be one scene that everybody says oh did you see where you know that yeah. thing that they did some sort of uh gross uh, thing or some some sort of sexual thing and that's the thing that by word of mouth brings everybody into the theaters uh but it's, it's funny back then and also now uh there are movies that have pornographic content in them oh, yeah. putting aside actual pornographic movies which yeah. are all, all over <laughs> available uh, you know at the press of a button but a you know there are movies that have x-rated you know uh non-simulated sex scenes in them and yet uh apparently if you put 
uh, some sexy stuff in a, in a, a movie that's meant for general you know, audiences, that sometimes has the effect of making it that much more popular. Yeah. You know? So uh, it's curious. The same audience that w- would never rush out to see a porno movie, but if they find out there's some sort of near pornographic element in another movie, they're, <laughs> yeah. they're there with their money. Right out, to it, yeah. Especially what they used to call the raincoat crowd. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> but, uh, and I, I worked in a movie theater for a number of years, and it was a, a second-run theater, uh, kind of the, the asshole of, of the chain. Uh, we got all the stuff, you know, that, that they didn't, they are putting the other theaters, yeah. you know, their prestige theaters. <laughs> and we got a lot of teenage sex comedies. They all sort of blended together in my mind. It's like one, that whole decade seems like one more oh, yeah. teenage sex comedy. Uh, but uh, yeah, some of the stuff was, it would today be considered bad taste at least, but pretty oh, yeah. shocking on the other you know, <laughs> But Young Frankenstein, I noticed that even in that scene, because they wanted to, I guess, hang on to their PG, even in the <laughs> yeah. rape scene, there's, they, don't, they don't even suggest he's taking off his pants. Right, no. It's all her reaction. Actually him. goes the actually goes to black before he even lays down on her, I think. Right, yeah. So they were, they were careful about that. But anyway, uh, otherwise, you know, very entertaining. What was film. the, <clears throat> there's one running joke in this movie that I don't get the reference on, and that's whenever they say, the maid's name and the horses. I am Paul Blucher. Steady. Make their what? What is that? Is that a reference? To anything or? Well, I know a lot of people. Just a jab online. at her looks. <laughs> Like she's so ugly, even the horses don't even want to hear her name. (laughs) I think that the the, the whole movie is parodying that style of melodrama. Mm -hmm. And in those types of gothic movies, uh, one of the things you might, one of the corny things that might be done, it would be seen, it would be considered corny nowadays, uh, would be to have. somebody say uh, the name of a character and then maybe a thunder, a sound of thunder. Yeah. <clears throat> uh, there's a scene in the original play of, of, of Dracula uh, where the, there's, you know, it's a lot kind of like a drawing room mystery almost. They're sitting around talking about all, all the things that are happening to Mina or Lucy. I forget which name she was going on. Yeah. <laughs> And just as they get to one point, they say something like, uh, who could be doing this horrible thing? Or how could this horrible thing be happening? Something, something like that. And then the maid says, Count Dracula, right at that moment. That's the sort of you know, uh, heightening um, yeah. melodrama. That, so I think in this instance, the idea was, uh, the gag was, she's such a... a uh, uh, strange and uh, seemingly dangerous creature that even the horses are scared when they hear, <laughs> hear a name. They, they, they whinny and, and try to, uh, you know, escape. Uh, but I, it, it's not because the name means glue. Means anything. Okay, yeah. It's just, it's just a funny game. It's really playing on 
movie conventions. Conven you know? Okay. And that's probably true of quite a few of the uh, of the jokes in it. They're just uh, it's funny. You know, it sort of reminds me of when I was a kid. I used to watch uh, the uh, Bugs Bunny and Daffy Duck cartoons because all the Warner Brothers cartoons up to the 1950s were all in the public domain. So local stations could run them all day long for oh, free. Yeah. And so when I was growing up, Bugs Bunny and Daffy Duck and Porky Pig and all those Warner Brothers characters, those were the characters that I really liked, much more so than... Mickey yeah, those were, those were always my favorite. Yeah. And they were uh, because those shorts were being done in the 40s during the war, there were a lot of references that went completely over my head. <laughs> yeah. But in a way, it just made it that much more funny to me. It seemed more authentic. It was like it was like uh, trying to understand your parents' jokes, you know. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, so uh, the, things like um, uh, Bugs Bunny screaming at at, at uh, Elma Fudd, uh, was this trip really necessary? Or turn out that light. You know, those are yeah. all things. Those were things that re referred to wartime slogans and things. Uh, they were trying to discourage people from taking unnecessary trips and during, uh, I guess, uh, air raids, uh, 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 they would tell people to turn off turn the lights. lights off, yeah. uh, uh, there are other things like the, uh, uh, there's uh, references to particular types of, uh, I, I guess you used to get a, a rationing coupon for your car, so you'd get so much uh, gas every month however they worked right it. yeah and they sometimes reference that in in the uh in the bugs bunny cartoons yeah that was had and i guess it was more of a commercial at the time but they always seem like a lot of those cartoons they had the wartime bonds right like they right. were trying to sell them to you <laughs> yeah a lot of stuff like that that probably i mean it's also true of money python if you watch the original show there's a lot of jokes about uh, British politicians that yeah. weren't known even at that time by Americans, <laughs> but it doesn't it doesn't really affect the joke because you know my uh, politicians are the same all over the world. Yeah. <laughs> we know them even though we don't know the name. We know what they get up to, so the jokes still work. Uh, and I guess that that's uh, it adds a level of authenticity and depth and texture to even something as superficial and frivolous as a cartoon when you have those little references in it oh, yeah. be interesting I don't, I don't think i've ever seen anybody do like a study of all the references to uh, uh social political cultural things uh, that were happening in the 40s references that ended up in the bugs bunny cartoons yeah. <laughs> be an interesting thing to study yeah i think that um this i mean the marty freeman character he was just like so good he had all the best jokes the uh their wolf and uh <laughs> werewolf werewolf there what there wolf there castle why are you talking that way I thought you wanted to. No, I don't want to. Suit yourself. I'm easy. And I, yeah. of course, and the, you know, they kind of, I guess they're kind of making fun of, poking fun at him when he turns, he tells, uh, 
tells you to turn there, there's a light switch and turns it on it starts sparking damn your eyes and too late you know <laughs> <laughs> well Marty Feldman made a career out of having those funny eyes yeah so he he was he seemed to be going out of his way to accentuate them right. uh, uh he's like five eight which i guess is about an inch shorter than me but in this movie uh, and in a number of other films he seems much shorter for much some shorter reason. yeah so completely uh you know uh and the idea of the, the hump switching size that's a cute gag yeah i think uh, i read that um i think just off like not while they were filming he would kind of move it around and it became so funny that they just they wrote it into the script <laughs> well that's what you need right I mean, oh yeah somebody who immediately soon, as soon as he sees a prop or a costume thing <laughs> says i know what we can do with that right he has an idea he was yeah you know, he had his own shows and he did his own sketches and things like that so it's kind of unfortunate that he died as young as he did yeah uh, because it might have been some more great things if he had gotten past Yellowbeard. beard might have been <laughs> some more great things that he could have done yeah i think the walk this way i think that was a joke that they just kind of made up and then mel brooks put it in uh, like other movies that he'd done after this well i think uh that line walk this way that must have been such a common gag maybe in vaudeville or uh, because that even is referenced in uh, in monty python yeah they have a thing where the uh, guy says well, uh, i guess the original joke was somebody goes into a drugstore and asks for powder and the guy says, walk this way, sir. And he says, if I could walk that way, I wouldn't need the powder. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> All of these other walk this way things like variations on that. Uh, but uh, uh, my understanding was Brooks was actually thinking of cutting that whole, uh, whole thing out. And he told the editors, leave it in for the preview, but then take it out. Yeah. Uh, and it got such a big response at the preview that he when they asked him if he wanted to cut it out he said are you crazy you know i mean it does it it, it is interesting he, he apparently would bring in like secretaries and from you know studio to watch bits that they had yeah. done to get their reaction to get a genuine reaction rather than the reaction of the suits i have to admit that some of the stuff that i've gone through uh, on my films over the years uh, it always seems like the people that are in charge of the money have no understanding of what, yeah, they, what yeah. is good and bad. They <laughs> simply can't see or understand what is good and bad. It sort of makes you long for a person like Alan Ladd Jr. who would just say yes to everything. <laughs> yeah. You know? yeah, whatever. I don't know what I'm doing. <laughs> I don't know why it is that uh, somebody would be willing to give an artist the money and then question question everything they the decisions do decisions yeah. that they make yeah. <laughs> but it doesn't seem like that was a problem with young frankenstein but certainly is a common problem of people uh who have no experience actually making anything they're people that are entirely involved in you know pushing papers around or taking meetings uh, those people seem to think that they have an unerring sense of what what works and they're wrong it's an erring sense of what works yeah uh, uh but what can you do that's you know it's it's a problem is that ultimately they have the the last word very often right. and and also there's no logical way to to argue some of these things because sometimes it's just a question of intuition in that instance 
Mel Brooks's intuition was take that joke out because it's a cheap joke. Yeah. You know, maybe too obvious. Uh, and, and then he, when he saw the reaction of the audience, he realized that he was wrong. So it, it, your intuition isn't always right, but you don't have anything else you can go by, right? There's no, there's no rules to making a comedy. There's no rules to making people laugh. Everything you might say, everything, like if you got Jerry Lewis or somebody like that who might, who was, you know, uh, egotistical enough to think that he could sort of lay out rules for how to be funny, he might be able to give you a whole bunch of rules, but almost immediately, uh, people will be making films where those rules are broken and, and they go on to great success. Right? Yeah, I think uh, what makes that joke work in this movie as opposed to <clears throat> when you used it later, because in, in the later, when you used it later in the movies, the person had a funny walk and that's what they were, you know, that's what they had to emulate. Right. Where at this one, it was the fact that he handed him his little tiny <laughs> cane and made him use that. I think that's what makes it work. And the fact that Gene, <clears throat> and then Gene Wilder's like, what am I doing? <laughs> right. Yes, he starts to do it. And he's like, what am I doing? <laughs> yes, that, uh, little things like that, that little expression uh, that he has on his face when he decides not to. <laughs> yeah. Uh, that makes the thing work. That makes it funny. Also, you know, again, the cast. I mean, all, all of those people just seem to be naturally funny. And it really is worth mentioning again what a terrific cast this is. Oh yeah, Kenneth uh, Mars as the inspector was just brilliant. He, and he was funny. he was in the producers too, right? Didn't That's he right. play Played the guy? The that, right. Yeah. Yes. So he's he, uh, if I remember correctly, the playwright in that was also had like a German accent, and he also wore a Nazi helmet. Right? Yeah, yeah. But the uh, uh, Madeline Kahn. Oh yeah, she's know, great. She's I love her. Great. She's like one of my favorites. And uh, obviously uh, Feldman and Wilder uh, and Peter Boyle and Gene Hackman, Terry Gaw, you know. Cloris Leachman. Cloris Leachman. Cloris Leachman, I tell you, <laughs> another person from the Mary Tyler Moore show. Yeah. And there are a lot of people that claim that they don't like her character on the Mary Tyler Moore show. I've always been very fond of that, of Phyllis. <laughs> uh, she is a really brilliant comedian. Right. Oh, she was. I think she passed away. Uh, yeah, I think the only people that are still alive are Mel Brooks, Terry Gar, <clears throat> and who else is still? I know there's at least one person that's still alive. Well, Madeline Kahn is she still alive? Is she no, she she died passed back away. in the nineties. Well, Peter Boyle has passed away. Peter, yeah, okay. Oh, yeah, Woody passed Feldman away. passed away. Uh, Maybe it's just the two then. Well, I'm glad to hear Terry Gar is still alive because I know yeah. she was having health problems for a while. So that's uh, she was always a favorite of mine, and for a while there, it seemed like she was in everything. She was even in Star Trek for Christmas. Yeah, yeah, I remember that episode of Star Trek because I think they were supposed to do a spinoff of that. That's episode. right. That was the Gary <clears throat> Seven. Uh, uh, that was like a backdoor pilot for another yeah. series. But uh, she was around quite a bit. I, I mean, I haven't bothered to catalog all her yeah. tv appearances up to that point but she seemed to be all, all around uh, during that period uh but i think that this might have been her first big film role i'm not sure she w w must have uh, gone right from this to close encounters didn't close yeah. encounters come out this oh no close encounters was in the 70s 70s uh, yeah. it was in 77 77 right? yeah this was 74 so there might have been some other things but she you know she's been in quite a few uh, great films so and she has that ability uh, to, uh, well, she has the ability to play comedy, which is rare, rare enough. 
she's attractive, but she's also funny. And she also is, uh, she has a sort of, uh, she conveys a sort of naivete yeah. by her as this character. You know, it's not like somebody playing a character like this. We think she is just as innocent. And and that really is the only way that like the jokes, some of the jokes are kind of uh, corny or uh, like she says, would you like a roll on the hay? Roll the hay, yeah. And she literally <laughs> wants to roll on the hay. <clears throat> you need a good a comedic performer to make gags like that work. And yeah. she, she's, she is that. Yeah, so Terry Garmel Brooks and Gene Hackman are the only survivors. <laughs> I don't know why we that's right gene, gene hackman, hackman is in his <laughs> 90s he's retired he's writing books now so uh yeah he would be the other one uh and Mel books are still active you still see him popping up from time yeah. to time I don't, think uh, he's, I don't think he's doing any i don't think he's done anything lately though yeah I, I, other than interviews and things like that i don't i haven't seen him in yeah. any uh movies or tv shows or anything um as did he pop up on larry david's show uh, i have a feeling uh, i heard I think he wrong. was on a couple episodes earlier, like earlier in the show. Oh, Terry Gaw, when she did that horrible movie in the 80s, uh, The Sting 2, mm -hmm. which played at the theater I worked in, just to give yeah. you an idea <laughs> what I'm talking about. How bad it was. Yeah. Right? Um, she went on talk shows and she was talking about how, because she was in that movie with Jackie Gleason. Because naturally, if you're doing a sequel to a movie with Paul Newman and Robert Redford, yeah. you get Jackie Gleason and Mac Davis. It's a natural. But Terry Gopp is in that. And she mentioned in the interviews that her father had been a, I don't know if he was like a vaudeville comedian. Or, uh, and his, her father always had a resentment uh, against Jackie Gleason because he uh, supposedly, according to her father, stole his act. Right. So um, some of the things, I, I don't know what was Reginald Van Gleeson or the poor soul or character, which, which of his menagerie of characters that he supposedly stole from this guy. But apparently uh, uh, Terry Gar uh, mentioned that to Mr. Gleeson. I don't know what, what happened as a result, but uh, interesting uh, that Mr. Gleeson, who <laughs> from other stories I've heard, was not the you know nicest guy all the time. Yeah. Uh, I, I don't I don't think that um, <clears throat> I don't think Terry Gar liked Gene Wilder too well either. Oh no, I don't think I think I just seen like a little thing where it said they asked asked her what what it was like working with him. She said it was a jerk. It was a jerk. I don't know. I don't know. I'm reading it, so I don't know what the context of that. You know, I'm saying if she was joking or whatever. Maybe she was. Yeah. Yeah. He just he didn't come off as a. I don't know. He just seems, oh, he he seems always come up as a nice guy. Yeah. In his interviews, he always seems like very smart and uh, pleasant. Uh, you know, but I'm he, sure interview on TV is different than working on the set. <laughs> you know what I'm well, saying? Like, I think generally, from what you hear, uh, of course, although this is there's always a publicity aspect to all these yeah. things that people say, but they said that generally this this set was a pretty happy set everybody seemed to get along everybody seemed to have a good time if you look at the bloopers it just seems to be everybody oh, yeah. cracking up you know snickering or you know roaring with laughter uh, i think brooks, there was one i think mel brooks and gene Wilder. i think they had one fight on the set i don't remember what was over but i guess uh mel brooks stormed off and then called <laughs> Called Gene Wilder on the phone and said, I don't know who that was you had in your apartment yelling, but don't ever have him back in there again. You know, reference him himself. 
Well, uh, I guess it's inevitable if you, if you have two people that feel strongly about something that it's going to lead to some arguments. Yeah, especially uh, when one of them wrote the script, one of them's right. directing it, and also you know chipped in on the script. I'm sure there's going to be some disagreements they're going to have. Well, I know that on producers, he had a lot of trouble with Zero Mostel. Zero Mostel, that I guess was Mel Brooks's second film. I think he did the 12 chairs and then the producers, if yeah. I forget the order right. And Zero Mostel, you know, uh, when people, somebody said, uh, you know, the director is, asked you to do this or that, and he said, director, what director? That's not a director. <laughs> uh, and apparently they had real animosity. Whether or not that can be explained in any way, I don't know. Maybe Mel Brooks uh, hadn't quite developed the uh, ability to handle larger than life yeah. figures like Zero Mostel. Oh, yeah. <laughs> uh, Zero Mostel had a, an interesting life and you know he went through a lot and he seemed like a very uh, a big person physically oh, in yeah. terms of personality. So maybe uh, Mel Brooks just hadn't, because Mel Brooks is kind of a, a big personality too. <laughs> yeah. um, so maybe the two of them just naturally butted heads, but it resulted in a brilliant movie. So Oh yeah, I, I I think it's interesting that Mel Brooks did uh, Twelve Chairs is an amusing film. I don't think anybody would single that out as being a great film. Uh, but uh, the producers, Blazing Styles, Young Frankenstein, Silent Movie, all of which were, you know, go from range from good to great. Yeah, you know, they're all sol at least very solid comedies. And there was a real excitement during those years when those films were coming out that you know people would say oh there's a new Mel Brooks movie you know that would be something you'd have to oh, go yeah. to see and then after I guess it was High Anxiety was the first one where maybe it wasn't as big a hit you know uh, uh, and then it seemed like he never really recovered his uh, yeah, I think, momentum I think my last, like the last movie that he made that I really enjoyed was probably Spaceballs Spaceballs, that way, yeah. But even that wasn't really a hit it when it came no, out. No, right? it wasn't a big hit. I mean, I enjoyed it. I loved it. <clears throat> you know, of course, I was younger when I seen it. And it was, you know, that was sort of that that kind of goofy comedy. Right. But like his later stuff after that, just like, like I really don't care for his Dracula Dead and Loving It. Yeah. I know he was spoofing the the later movie, but I really wish he would have done what he done with this one and spoof the original right. well i think that that, dracula. that would have worked out better <laughs> that may be his the biggest mistake on that dracula uh, parody was Drac doing the corp, the right or yeah francis ford coppola version in young frankenstein he said we're just doing this we're just doing the 30s universal frankensteins in the uh, leslie nielsen movie he seemed to want to do everything. He wanted to do yeah. the Coppola version. He wanted to have a little Bela Lugosi. He wanted to do, you know, the whole range. Even yeah, it a little, didn't work. little vibe of uh, George Hamilton in that. Uh, yeah. May not have been intentional, <laughs> but uh, by that time, there had been so, so many Dracula spoofs uh, that maybe nobody could have done. It may have some fun scenes in it. Yeah. Well, uh, what it felt to me more like he was almost like now he was ripping off like the Naked Gun movies. Right. That's the kind of comedy it was in it. That right. was just this ridiculous, like when they're staking and like this, the blood just keeps spraying. I'm just like, that's not funny. Like, <laughs> right. I mean, it's funny, but it's not like intelligent funny, I guess. It's just more, more goofy, more goofball comedy. Right. 
Well, I think that with the with Naked Gun or Airplane or with Brooks's great movies, a surprise is an important part of what yeah. makes them work. It's when you see these sort of horny old tropes or conventions being turned on their head, the surprise of that makes it funny. But if you're seeing somebody doing jokes about something that has been joked to death, oh yeah, uh, then it really can't. I mean, I, I don't know how you could do a Dracula comedy yeah. anymore. I mean, that's what I mean. That's what made the airplanes money movies funny was everybody played it serious. Yes. I mean, yes. Leslie Nielsen was just dead serious of the whole thing. It was hilarious. <laughs> I and think also, if he would, I think if he if he would have played a Dracula like that, it would, it would have been great. Right. Yes. Well, he might not have been the best guy for Dracula <laughs> the, all, yeah. all around, but uh, the airplane movies were a direct parody of a certain set of films. The yeah, airport. airport. And there was also another movie, I forget the name of it, that had a very similar plot to to what we see in Airplane. Yeah. Uh, so the, uh, they had sort of like a template that they could use. They had a uh, something that they could bounce off of. Yeah, I think the I think the uh, passengers and the pilots being poisoned was from one movie, and then the majority of the passenger happened to land the plane was from like one of the airport seventy four or something like that. Airport seventy five. Yes. Yeah. Karen Black's uh, entry into the series. Yeah. <laughs> that, there's so much. That's another example of movies that almost seem like they're begging to be made fun of. Oh yeah. There's so much in Airport 75 that just is hilarious. You know? <laughs> uh, in a way, I sort of, I'm sorry that we, I don't can't think of anybody who's doing what Mel Brooks or the Zucker Brothers. No, not anymore. Right now, you know. I guess uh, the last would have been, well, actually, that was the Zucker Brothers. I was going to say the scary movies would have been the, but they did, they did, they did write those. Or they started writing them. They wrote the first two, but well, so I guess those were the last ones. One problem is that when uh, with uh, when uh, with these movies enough time had passed between the thing that they were making fun of and the movie yeah that would, so that you could say well that's firmly established everybody knows what we're talking about it's not something that was a joke for five minutes and then disappeared <laughs> yeah. uh, nowadays with the movies that you're talking about scary movie uh, was it was a scary movie yeah, I guess that that was the par parody of the the scream. It started movies. off as the parody of the scream movies. Yeah, right. and the problem with that is their references were from movies that were just out last in year theaters yeah. that, that, <laughs> yeah. that week. You know, and, it, <laughs> and it's like um, that's not really that ain't going to work over the long term. You know, I mean, contrary to what I was just saying about how we can find comedies funny even if we don't get the references, but if the whole thing is, you know, if the joke is just a reference to some other recent movie that probably is not going to be a movie that's going to have a, a long shelf life yeah and i would say i suppose i don't know how many scary movies they did but there was there was a there was a decent amount of them and of course it got ridiculous to where it was just that's all it was there, there was no actual storyline it was just every scene was a parody of something from one another movie right well uh Fortunately, they seem to have stopped now. Oh, yeah, so, yeah, yeah, thankfully. So this would be a good time. Although comedy, as they've often said, is really hard. Oh, so, yeah, I, I always imagined that'd be the hardest thing to write. Yeah. I would say, I used to think mystery, like a murder mystery would be hard. But I figured, well, you start with the murder, then you just work your way back. 
So I, th I think comedy probably would be the hardest thing to write. <laughs> yeah, uh, I mean, coming up with a mystery that has a, a, a unique or original twist, that's hard. Yes. Yeah. But people yeah, can be can entertained. Least, you can at least work backwards from it, right? right. Yeah. Where well, with a joke, you can't really work backwards from that. Well, joke. <laughs> I mean, your success or failure is, is, is immediate, right? Yeah. Uh, people, are, people know in real time while they're watching the movie if there's laughter. And if there's no laughter, yeah. then you're failing, right? <laughs> I mean, I, there's some comedies that I like, not because they're hilariously funny, but because they're, they have a, uh, a gentle sort of good humor uh, and they're not meant to be falling down funny. Yeah. And sometimes those films and TV shows can age better than the, you know, flat out hilarious uh, stuff because the flat out hilarious stuff, if you have a good laugh at it, you know, it's not it's something you got to enjoy. Yeah. <clears throat> Yeah, and once I, you know that, once you like with a pratfall, it's like, well, I've already seen that. Well, so I'm not gonna can, laugh at that every time. <laughs> if I can risk your sanity by making another Mary Tyler Moore reference, I sure good. Uh, Mary Tyler Moore show was on for like seven years, and uh, for the first several seasons, I don't know if you have any familiarity with this show. Do you yeah, yeah, them? yeah. First of sev several seasons, it was all about Mary, mostly Mary at home, and her. Uh, uh, the people who were in the apartment building with her were the characters in the, in, right, in the episodes. Yeah. Phyllis by, played by Klaus Leachman and Rhoda was uh, Valerie Harper. And those episodes for the first few seasons uh, were always uh, criticized uh, as being not as funny, not as good as the later episodes when they shifted to an emphasis on uh, the office, Lou Grant yeah. and Ted Baxter and Murray Slaughter. And they had a much sharper, uh, might even say crueler sense of humor in the later episodes of the, uh, the later seasons of the series. And I used to feel that way because I used to watch this show in syndication. It used to be a regular part of my day for years, really. Uh, and recently, the last time I rewatched the series, I realized I really prefer the earlier episodes. Right, yeah. Because when you watch the later episodes, you see the construction of the joke. You can't get to those really sharp <laughs> yeah. jokes without sort of building to it. And you have to sort of cheat sometimes so characters don't behave the way they should. Right? So you're sort of damaging the integrity of the character just to get this really big laugh. And also passage of time and, and the different attitudes about things, but particularly about how people are treated in the workplace, have made some of the things unacceptably cruel and mean-spirited, yeah. you know. So that sort of makes the early episodes, which aren't quite as funny, admittedly, they don't have, <laughs> yeah. the, the, but they're not really trying for that. They're going for a sort of softer, uh, gentler kind of of, uh, of humor. And uh, it seems to me that that works better over time. I mean, some of the episodes maybe are too sappy to, yeah. to go. <laughs> but um, uh, I don't know why I brought that up. Maybe you can refresh my memory. <laughs> <laughs> I'm an old man and I lose my way very easily. Uh, it's a good thing that I'm not running for president and yeah. they <laughs> of having Alzheimer's. Uh, I guess the point that I was trying to make is that uh, sometimes ha-ha, uh, uh, you know, laugh out loud comedies aren't the things that last. At last yeah. Young Frankenstein <clears throat> might be an exception, although you could argue that 
it isn't a movie that goes for the laughs as you said it doesn't yeah. go for the laughs all the time yeah don't the only joke i really didn't i don't know if it's even a joke but the only part i didn't really find hella humorous was when he gets the when he gets to the little girl she's at the you know they're in the original movie throws in the lake obviously and he sets on the teeter-totter and launches her through the bedroom window it's like oh that's kind of cheap <laughs> Well, it, just, it didn't fit this movie for some reason i know what you mean i i even when i saw it the first time i thought that that was kind of a disappointing scene yeah and i realized the problem that they had i mean the in the original film he throws he drowns the guy yeah, in the yeah throws her in the lake and drowns her yeah There's no way to do that in a comedy right so uh i guess that's the best that they wanted to have that scene because i think they could have just ended on because she you know she says oh well, what do you want to do now and he looks at the camera like mm. All right. Well, you know what's coming. I think they could have ended it there. They didn't yeah, need to do the launcher through the window. I think the problem with that would have been people would have said that they were suggesting he was going to rape the little girl. Oh, okay. <laughs> you know, which that's not. You know, yeah. I, I don't think he can do. There was a, the monster really is not seen doing anything. To and, anybody. Yeah. He's completely, right. Even more so than the original <clears throat> movies. He's completely, uh, you know, an innocent. Uh, so uh, that that's a tricky spot to be. And what oh, do you yeah. do? Especially when you're talking about uh, killing little girls, yeah, that's a hard one to make people laugh about. You know? <laughs> but uh, yeah, but that is that's probably not the biggest laugh in the movie. Yeah. You know? And they apparently had to go through all the trouble of hooking the little kid up to a, a cable to fly yeah, into and it just looked cheap. It looked, I don't know. I just I did that was probably my least favorite joke in the whole movie. Well, in the original movies, it's interesting. The monster, maybe this is because of censorship rules at the time. Monster really doesn't commit that much havoc. I mean, no. the little girl he drowns, you could almost <clears throat> say accidentally. Yeah, yeah no misunderstanding. Yeah, doesn't know, yeah. Right. And the uh there any time he actually kills somebody intentionally, we usually it's usually off screen. Uh and sometimes it seems almost like a plot device, like they have to have him kill somebody so that the, the <laughs> yeah. villagers can excuse me, break out their torches and go on a rampage. But uh, the, the, uh, I guess with the original movies and with this, they always want to keep the audience on the monster's side. They don't want... Yeah. That, that's another thing that changed about the character as they got into uh, the 60s and 70s and exploitation filmmakers started to use the character. They basically turned him into a, a serial killer, you know? Oh, yeah. So, uh, but... Uh, one of the funniest scenes, in my opinion, uh, is uh, the abnormal scene. Yeah. <laughs> and Gene Wilder, after almost being rattled uh, by the monster, <laughs> calmly sits down and has a chat with his employee about that brain. That wasn't... Now, that brain that you gave me, was it Hans Delbruck? No. Ah. Uh, would you mind telling me whose brain I did put in? Then you won't be angry. I will not be angry. Abby someone. Abby someone. Abby who? Abby normal. <laughs> uh, and when he says uh, Abby something. <laughs> yeah. Abby Normal. That his reaction, Gene Wilder's reaction to that is hilarious. Yeah. I don't know. I like I like the charade scene also. 
thought yes. that that was said again. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Just the fact that they do the entire charade twice. Gimmick. Yeah, through the whole while he's being choked. I think yes. that was hilarious. Yeah. Yes, that was very funny. <clears throat> There's a lot of things that I can see why uh, so many of the actors in this have said in, in recent interviews that were that they'll meet people that basically can tell do the whole movie. They remember all the you know, yeah. all the dialogue because it is similar to Monty Python, uh, Monty, Monty Python's films. It's the sort of film that really inspires that kind of fanaticism. But uh, and Monty Python is uh, and the Holy Grail is similar in that there was also that sort of. Uh, intense uh, attention to detail you know it was wasn't just a comedy about yeah. king arthur it was one of the best uh, films about king arthur <laughs> yeah. just from a visual sense you know it really yeah. felt perfect for that time and it sort of was announcing the arrival of terry gilliam as a very uh, you know an important uh, filmmaker so uh Mel Brooks actually ended up doing another black and white movie or being involved with another black and white movie, uh, The Elephant Man. He produced. Oh, did he? He produced that film. Yeah. Wasn't so, there wasn't there another one that he made that was in was High Anxiety in black and white? No, I don't think that was in black and white. Uh, okay, I was first think there was another one that was in black and white, but I guess there wasn't. Well, it's tricky, obviously, to get the studios to go along with black and white because silent movie wasn't in black and white either no they did okay i must i must just be <laughs> remembering wrong then because silent movie was really uh it, it was it, to to in a sense it was a, a, a done in the style of a silent movie yeah it was a silent movie uh matter of fact i think there's only one word spoken and it's spoken by marcel marceau <laughs> yeah uh but the uh I guess they just figured we can't, I, I can't do this twice. I can't get away with, because he was lucky with uh, Young Frankenstein. It didn't affect the box office at all. Yeah. But uh, to do that twice would be to risk becoming the guy who does movies in black and white, which, you know, he, I, I guess he had no desire to. Also, the silent movie wasn't uh, a sure thing the way Frankenstein was. Yeah. I have a feeling that people would have gone out to see that movie just on the basis of the fact that it was about Frankenstein. But silent movies don't have the same sort of fanatical, especially if you're just talking generically about all silent movies. <laughs> yeah. It doesn't have the same sort of attraction. I find that period in film history fascinating, but I have to admit, if for entertainment purposes, I probably prefer to watch a documentary about oh, the silent oh, yeah. movies than yeah. the silent movie themselves. It's just that the copies of silent films that we have uh, have been so poorly preserved. You know, they've aged so badly that it's a difficult thing to watch silent movies. And also, I think we talked about this before, silent films require complete attention of the audience. You can't look away, you're going to miss something uh, because the whole thing is being done visually. And that makes it kind of a chore for a, a simple mind like me who's used to multitasking and having a bunch of different things going on while I'm watching movies. Uh, you can't do that with a silent movie. And obviously the style of acting and the style of storytelling that was popular uh, back then is quite different from the way things are done now. So they're hard. They're usually pretty hard for people to watch now. Yeah. Maybe uh, Nosferatu, horror movies, interestingly, Nosferatu and Cabinetic Dr. Caligari and science fiction movies like Metropolis, 
those are the ones that you hear mentioned the most. Yeah. Funny thing is, I never really thought, and maybe I'm showing my stupidity here, I never thought that Nosferatu was that great a movie, and I certainly don't think it's the best F.W. Murnau film. No, I, I like the, I mean, I like it, but I like the 79 version better. The 79 version with uh, Klaus Kinski? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Well, uh, yeah, uh, and certainly you see that quite a difference there, right? Uh, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> quite a difference a couple of decades make. But the, the uh, original version always struck me as being kind of primitive in a way, uh, yeah. in terms of the storytelling. I mean, it's visually impressive, of course. It looks great, and he's certainly a fearsome-looking creature. But um, the people that list that as their favorite Dracula movie, you know, I, I suppose it could be on the list, but I certainly wouldn't list that as my favorite. I mean, I always appreciated it for the time it was made and what they were able to do, but I don't think it's the best. Yeah. Well, that's an interesting thing. I would say that probably if we were able to go back and watch all the silent movies that were uh, popular back then, we'd find a lot of them are very sophisticated oh, yeah. things. They're not primitive at all. I have a feeling that when he did that, uh, when Renau did Nosferatu, he might have felt that he didn't have to rise to the same standard because there's a story about a vampire, you know? Yeah. <laughs> uh, but um, anyway, I mean, I still like it. I'm not, not it's, uh, the aspects of it, I think, are very effective. But I, I don't think it's Manau's best film. No. Uh, but uh, if, anyway. if I'm going to watch a Dracula movie, I'm not going to put that one on, though. <laughs> well, pro yeah, I probably yeah. wouldn't mind. I, although, to give it credit, I don't, I, I don't think it's very long. So it's no. not like you'd suffer too much if you, had, if you wanted to watch it. Cabinet of Dr. Caligari is an interesting watch. Mm -hmm. uh, but um, and Metropolis, well, it's long. I mean, that's the interesting thing about silent movies. A lot of them are fucking unending things. Yeah. They just uh, I forget what director it was Eric von Stroheim. Uh, one of the films he he came back with a like a five hour uh, <laughs> cut of it. You know. And he had to be convinced to cut it down. Cut it he got down, it down yeah. to three hours. And, <laughs> uh, but back then, I guess it was a, a, a different thing because uh, theaters were an important part of people's lives. You know, going to the movie house was a big oh, deal. Yeah. So, uh, but I still don't know how you'd ever get anybody to see a three, three or five hour movie. Uh, even back no. then. I don't think I've seen anything longer than just your normal. I guess maybe two would probably be the longest movie I've ever seen in a theater. Well, two, two and a half hours is probably the outer limit for yeah. most people. Yeah. I, got I didn't see JFK in a theater. I've never seen Titanic. So is that over two hours? Uh, pretty sure. Yeah. Uh, maybe... I, mean, I like JFK. I liked, I enjoyed watching it at home on VHS, but I don't, I don't think I could have sat in a theater. <laughs> Must have been a lot long. of VHS tapes. Yeah. Uh, but uh, Titanic and Lawrence of Arabia and movies like that, maybe because of their epic uh, scope, yeah. Ben-Hur, uh, Ten Commandments, maybe those movies can dare to go to two and a half or three hours. But I mean, uh, it's largely, at least in the theater days, it was largely, you know, when the ex theater exhibition was the important thing. It was really a question of... Uh, having being able to squeeze in enough shows to make the theater profitable oh yeah well plus yeah. back then you didn't have a lot of they weren't showing like 10 movies a day so that you know what i'm saying you go to the theater now they're 
10 movies are playing. Yeah, they well, gotta, they got to try to, yeah, they got to fit in as many showings as they can of each movie. Right. Multi screen theaters. Yeah. And, uh, yeah. And back then it was one one screen, one movie at a time. Yeah. And, and a short. Uh, <laughs> oh, yeah. Well, that's true. They did have a lot of the, the, the programs were always that maybe that's why people didn't object to getting movies that were like an oh, hour. Oh, yeah. Because you ate yeah, up cartoon, right. start your movie, show they had an intermission. That was the thing that my parents were always telling me about is what the theater going experience was like back then. You know, they, they used to have uh, dish night where they'd give away dishes and yeah. <laughs> you know, live performances, uh, you know, and uh, uh, the newsreels and the cartoons, uh, you know, uh, uh, short subjects, uh, any number of different things. And that all got or two propaganda films. <laughs> well, that would come. Yes, that would come with your uh, sometimes came in the movie itself. Yeah. <laughs> but the uh, uh, I guess it was in after the consent decree. Uh, uh, and the theaters started, they started, uh, the distributors started uh, uh, focusing on making epics. Yeah. They pretty much eliminated their B movie this major studio is pretty oh, yeah. much eliminated to be movie uh, category um and uh that's where uh aip and people like roger corman got their big break because the studios weren't making those they weren't movie, making movies like frankenstein and, yeah <laughs> uh, so they were able to become suppliers of product to drive-ins and to indie independent theaters uh so uh yeah all these things the changes that have happened in the industry and it seems to be non-stop even now you know uh, major changes are happening all the time they actually reversed the consent decree recently so yeah the distributors the studios will be able to own theater chains again probably not a good idea probably not surprising not. that that happened under trump yeah i'm sure Disney will probably own a lot of theaters and just show their films. Well, this this <laughs> might be the reason why they didn't rush too quickly to get into all streaming. Yeah, it seemed like for a while there they were tempted. When the pandemic hit, they thought, well, maybe this is the time to just make everything day and date. You know, streaming will come out at the same time as the films are released in the theaters. And then several of the studios seem to back away from that. Yeah. Maybe because now that they can actually own the theaters as theaters, well, yeah. that might be a, a good thing in the future. If you all you need is some hit movies. Oh yeah. You get if some you hit want, movies, then you can really make a nice bit of money if you own the theaters, right? If you want to see this great picture, then come to our theater and pay us fifty dollars to see it. <laughs> I know uh, they used to have a thing they used to call fall walling. I don't know if they yeah. do it anymore. You've heard that term? Yeah. Uh, I know, like with the uh, with like. Uh, Thunderball, and that came out. Bond was such a big thing that the uh, the, the distributor just four walled the theaters that it was opening in, so they'd get all the money. Oh yeah. <laughs> uh, all they had to do was pay for the operation of the theater, the staff, and whatnot, and then every you know the the ticket the ticket price, everything that came in was theirs, which is a pretty good idea if you're sure that it's going to be a hit. And yeah. In that case, they know it was almost certain to be a hit. But, uh, you know, that's also another, uh, something back in the 60s, they had the uh, roadshow thing, which they don't do anymore. Yeah. Where they would put it in one theater and play for, you know, pick a, a big theater like Radio City Music Hall with a lot of seats. 
certain amount of prestige. They did this with Star Trek, the motion picture. Matter of fact, that might've been one of yeah. the last. <laughs> uh, nowadays, of course, with, uh, I think probably with the success of Jaws and Star Wars, they decided that nonsense of going slow, going, doing slow yeah. release, they, like, put it out in every fucking theater in the country. Everywhere, yeah. once, Make your money, sometimes all of it back within the first weekend. <laughs> weekend, right? yeah. <laughs> Things like some of the Marvel movies are on their way to, to making a billion dollars after like a month. Yeah. Yeah. Especially after they start including, I guess they start opening on Thursdays now, so they include that in their weekend so they can say they made more money. <laughs> right. right. And of course, once they start doing the midnight opening, you know what I'm saying? Like I, when I seen the Star Wars prequels, all, all, all three of them that I went and seen were midnight showings, you know, but actually thursday night so they would count that money as their opening weekend yeah well i i have fond memories myself of back in the 80s going to see a lot of the movies as so supposedly sneak previews <laughs> yeah <laughs> like the a few days before the weekend when the film was supposed to open they would uh, put it into a theater you know at, at like eight o'clock at night after the other shows the movie that was normally showing they would sneak preview it and that was a great way to sort of generate interest and excitement but it was also a great way to add to your opening box office. Yeah. <laughs> because if your movie's been running for a day or two before it, its official opening you know that makes it look like it's a big hit but uh and of course people can't help but be excited about anything if they feel like they're a privileged few that are getting oh, into yeah. some sneak preview it was kind of funny to have a sneak preview that's advertised full page ads in all newspapers <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> But uh, there were quite a few times when I would show up for those things and there were literally lines around the block. You know, stop here and go all the way around. You know. And sometimes you, you, people would come up and say, what is this for? Because like, <laughs> it wasn't even clear. There were yeah. no, no theaters here. You know? <clears throat> uh, Star Trek II actually was one of those where I was actually waiting all the way around the block to get in for a sneak preview. Yeah. But, uh, and it was such a, a big... A successful sneak preview they had to run it two or three times after that uh to accommodate the crowds yeah but i don't hear that sort of thing other than as you say them opening marvel movies uh early uh you don't really hear sneak uh, preview or anything like that, yeah. anymore uh but uh well they seem to be able to make their fortune anyway with these movies <laughs> yeah. It's a, the Marvel thing is also, it seems to be a license to print money. I don't know when the steam is going to oh, run yeah. out of it. I'm I'm pretty much done with it. I'm not going to. You're not a Marvel fan anymore. Well, I mean, I am, but I'm just done with their with their movies. Like I don't really, I can't follow the rest of these storylines. Or they're, like they're they're done with the what I started with with Iron Man, which right. I guess they were calling Phase One through Four. That's pretty much done with with this last the Doctor Strange movie. So I just, I, and the, a lot of the storylines now are on streaming and I don't, I'm not paying for their, so I'm just, eh, whatever. <laughs> well, it, it, I guess it was a, a brilliant move to sort of integrate all that stuff together. So the yeah. movies are all sort of connected and all the different fr franchises are connected and even bringing in the TV series so that it's all, you know, a, a constant, uh, a constant supply of product to yeah. the addicts that they've created. But, uh, uh, it all goes right past me. I can't really see what the attraction is. I used to be a superhero fan, but 
Yeah. Um, I mean, I just, I, I mean, I had to finish that storyline they were doing, but after that, I'm just like, okay, I don't, I don't need it to watch anything else after this. Done. Yeah. Well, um, I, every time there's another big hit superhero movie, I say, well, we're probably getting to the end now. Yeah. <laughs> but it doesn't seem to be happening. So I don't know what needs to happen in the world before people move on to something else. I suppose inevitably they will, but right yeah. now it seems, they were pretty much stuck with superhero movies, so we either learn to like them or find something else to watch. Yep. All right, so I finally found it here. It says um, <clears throat> says that this movie was a loving tribute to the Universal Frankenstein that ran from thirty-one to forty-five. Uh, the version of putting on the Ritz uses the revised lyrics of nineteen forty-six uh-huh. because of the uh, racially insensitive original lyrics. So now I'm interested in looking up those original lyrics and <laughs> see what it says well i don't know if if i'm right on this but even that line from uh chat Chat chattanooga station that mm-hmm. might also be when he says pardon me boy uh he might be referring to a, a black uh shoeshine person in the, in right, the yeah. station uh, in this movie, in Young Frankenstein, it's just a little German kid, <laughs> yeah. a little Transylvanian kid, or whatever the hell he's supposed to be. Yeah. But, uh, yeah, well, it, it sort of shows how common uh, these little racial insults were, you know. And probably, probably weren't even meant as, as probably insults. Probably not, yeah. People didn't even think about it. That's one of the uh, one of the better things, actually, about the Universal films is there's really no reference to race at all. No. You know? And I remember reading that, um, and I, we might have discussed this when we talked about the Hammer films, the uh, black audience at the time was very strong for the universal horror films. Yeah. As a matter of fact, for the latest sequels, uh, I remember seeing in an interview, reading an interview with somebody who was involved with uh, universal uh, publicity, and they said that the, they almost were being made for that audience past a certain point. Uh, and I, you often wonder why the black audience would be so interested in something that has no black characters in it. Yeah. And I think the reason is because it does in, completely avoid race. I mean, a, a, a black audience member can sit and watch those movies and not have to worry about being insulted by some yeah. stereotypical character on the screen. Uh, and also, it might have given them a certain amount of satisfaction to just see how fucking crazy white people are. Because <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> there's nobody in any of those movies that acts like a normal human being. Uh, but, uh, but it's an interesting thing. Uh, plenty of other uh, movies from that time, of course, uh, had pretty offensive racial stuff. The oh, Fu yeah. Manchu movies, for instance. You know, the pretty... Uh, actually, Mask of Fu Manchu, which Boris Karloff starred in, which is a good film. It's beautifully de- designed and it's very entertaining sort of pulp uh, type uh, movie, but it's uh, almost openly racist. Yeah. Uh, they, don't, they don't make any attempt to hide the sort of yellow peril philosophy that's, uh, that's behind it. Uh, and of course, Birth of a Nation set, set <laughs> yeah. the standard for that back in the silent days. Uh, but uh, anyway, uh, so that's not something that uh, you have to worry about too much when you're watching the Universal films or yeah. when you're watching the Hammer uh, horror films. Yeah. 
So it's uh, there's no discussion of race because uh, everybody, no matter what ethnicity they supposedly are, they all sp speak with British accent. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so you get around the whole problem. All right. So uh, Young Frankenstein, do you recommend this one as a Halloween movie? Watch it, oh, yeah. watch it around the spooky season. I think it would work very well as a Halloween movie. And, uh, you know, it makes a good companion piece with things like Abbott and Costello. And uh, I suppose if you want to stretch a point, probably wouldn't feel out of place with something like Rocky Horror Picture Show, which isn't yeah. something that I've ever been a particular fan of. Me neither. A lot of people enjoy that movie. So that those would be, I don't know, although my, my preference would be for Flesh for Frankenstein, the Andy Warhol. <laughs> yeah. I don't know if that's one I can recommend to most people. You know, that's not really a, uh, something you want to put on a Halloween party. No. Nah. Well, I maybe at certain parties. Maybe, maybe, yeah, it depends. But uh, not not something where children are present. Yeah, I definitely recommend. It. Like I said, it's like just thinking about today. I think it is my favorite Mel Brooks movie. I think yeah. it's like his. Even though I guess he really didn't write the whole thing, I think it's still directed wise and just visually, it's it's the best one. And yeah. you can't go wrong with the cast. I love everybody in this movie. It is just almost perfect. No one in it that you hate. Yeah. I recommend everybody watch it. I watched mm -hmm. it on. Uh, I know. I know you sent me a copy, but then they also had a. Uh, it's on HBO. Oh. So they had a, they had a really good copy on there. That's the one I watched today. But yeah, I recommend it. Yeah, it's 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 a a, a, a very entertaining film, and, and it works well as a film. And it's it's uh, uh, it, it honors the original films. I think yeah. the, the affection for the original films comes through that attention to detail sort of suggests that they really cared about getting it right and, and, and paying tribute to those films. And that wins them a lot of extra points in, in my book. Yeah. And there's not a lot of, you don't have to get every reference. It's still funny. Even if you no, don't understand no. the references. Yeah. I don't think that should, uh, uh, most people are not going to be uh, bothered by that. I don't think yeah. there's some things that I'm still trying to figure out. I don't know what the, Reference the kippers. I don't know. I don't get so the what. There's a scene where uh, Debbie R and Gene Wilder are having breakfast, and he picks up a big plate of kippers and says, "Kippers." Oh yeah, I don't know that. I don't know either. I don't get that. And maybe it's some reference to cuisine and in, in uh, German cuisine, uh, but they're not in Germany. Yeah, I don't know. Uh, but that's that'll be a topic of research yeah when I, have a, when I have an opportunity i'll try to figure out <laughs> what all right means. uh so where, where can everybody find your movies at uh both of my films demon resurrection and sleepless nights revamped are available on amazon prime video uh, pay-per-view and they're available for free on platforms like uh, plex and tubi and uh uh, Roku and a new one called Mometu, which just uh, apparently just uh, appeared recently. So, <laughs> they just see. pop up out of anywhere now. They just come and then streaming, <clears throat> new streaming service, especially free with ads. One seem to be coming, new ones seem to be coming all the time. So, the, uh, Sleepless Nights, Amazon Prime, and, and Plex for now, more coming, and Demon Resurrection, all the other ones I mentioned, Tubi and Roku and and Mometu and uh, Vimeo VHX and uh, probably a bunch of others that I don't remember. You probably but, just search, Google search, and it'll show you all of them. 
should be pretty easy to find or people can check out my facebook pages for demon resurrection and sleepless nights uh, my account on facebook or twitter they should be able to find all that information and uh, i would suggest uh, after they finish watching uh, young frankenstein for halloween maybe they could squeeze in some time to watch demon resurrection or sleepless nights there you go i recommend it both i got the shirt on demon resurrection that's right. shirt you got the demon resurrection shirt now we just gotta get a sleepless night shirt and i'll have the that's right yes. catalog on well, <laughs> I'm, I'm working on that and uh, we'll have something soon and there your cat there's the cat just in time yep. perfect timing <laughs> just in time to say farewell yep all right. Well, why, this isn't is, they, uh, why isn't the cat wearing a Demon Resurrection shirt? That's I couldn't. I didn't get. I couldn't get one small enough. So. <laughs> they do sell those, I think. Yeah, I'll try to get one. All right. Well, this was a good episode. Until next week, we'll continue to watch the good, the bad, and the cheaply made. Thanks, Dave. Damn your eyes! Too late. <laughs>